Good morning, Reliance. Would you stand with me as we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, to chapter 4, verse 2. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You may be seated. Thank you, Sheila. Well, good morning, Reliance. It's such a joy to to worship with you and sing with you. Um, After 17 months of going through the letter of Romans, after considering cross, Good Friday before Resurrection Sunday, after celebrating Resurrection Sunday with you and considering last week the day of the Lord and the judgment to come and the hope of the salvation we reflected on last week, we are now turning. To begin now, looking at the Old Testament. Um, I have this voice in my head. Uh, For some reason, maybe it's me or it's just a cultural perception of the Old Testament, but often the perception, what I find within the world and even at times, sometimes even in the church, is that the God of the Old Testament is strangely different from the God in the New Testament. Richard Dawkins doesn't help. His famous quotation, some of you may have heard it, Dr. Hawkins Considering the God of the Old Testament says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist. Infanticidal, genocidal, Philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He doesn't speak well of them. Nobody has to guess what he thinks. Um, The God of the Old Testament is often, I think, even in our own traditions, perceived this way. He's different. Uh, And over the years, even as I have transitioned from the New to the Old Testament, there have been some even within the church that question that step. Some, even in our own tradition in contemporary studies, want to treat the Old Testament as um, an appendix to the New, or to treat it as helpful 
but not authoritative. I could quote them verbatim, but I ask you to take them at my word. And if we're not careful, we ourselves slowly become more and more ignorant of God entirely. And so I want to do two things this morning. I want to set the tone for why we're going to be looking through the, the letter of, or the book of Genesis. Over the next six months, we are going to just sit in that foundational book of the Bible. Over the next couple of weeks, you will hear from a couple other guys who draw out truths from the Old Testament. And one of the reasons why I want to do this is I hope that as a people of reliance that we not become ignorant of the hope, the promises that we have in Christ in light of what God has revealed to himself in the New Testament. And so that's what I want to do in the first part of our time together is to to talk about six reasons. And, And these reasons are not my own. They're just the church's perception, and it's not sufficient, these six reasons, why we study the Old Testament, why we preach from the Old Testament, and why we teach from the Old Testament. My aim is to just hit on six reasons. And then two, I want to respond not just to Richard Dawkins, excuse me, Dr. Richard Dawkins, or the critic who thinks like him, because the critic is not just him. You work with them. And they slowly collect some elements from the Old Testament and take them out of context to paint God as vindictive and cruel. It might be even the college professor who attempts to dismantle scriptures by using, as his individual does, fancy words so as to demean God, which is being revealed through the Old Testament. He's the relative who just simply hates God and picks up a couple verses and discredits him entirely as a result of his own persuasion. So I want to answer that, that perception, that critic, because I know reliance, I know that this is not simply true, that you, this is what you hold to, but I want to remind you of why we hope in the God of hope and grace. He is not vindictive. He is not bloodthirsty. He is not unjust. He is not unforgiving. And the Old Testament goes to great strengths and lengths to show that the God that we hope in is the same God that we love in the new. But before I get there, let me give you six reasons why we're doing this. One, just as it was read this morning, the scriptures, the Old Testament is inspired, right? When Paul writes to Timothy, remember that the the New Testament had not all been put together for the church to have like we are privileged today in one sitting to have it collected. And so as Paul writes to Timothy, he encourages him to use the Old Testament as the means by which to edify the people of God in the church. And so he writes in 2 Timothy 3.14, Why do you use the Old Testament? You, however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Um, Other places which we will look along the way as we go through our six reasons. We'll talk about the scriptures as being holy And we recognize that any time the word holy is introduced to us, we recognize there's something different about the words of God versus our own. 
Our words do not continue past our own strength of voice, but yet God's word is holy and then it spans from generation to generation, never changing. Timothy. And that from your childhood you have known the sacred writings. They're not like your words. They're God's words. They're inspired, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, including the old, including the new, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. It's sufficient to do these things. You want to change the heart of a nation, what do you use? The holy word of God. How how often man's own efforts to change the heart of a nation have failed. Not God's word, as we will soon see in my second point. So that, why do you do this, Timothy? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. With these words, which would include the New Testament and the Old Testament, we recognize that the first reason why we use the Scripture is that they, they are able to give us life for the quality that they possess. They're inspired. They're God's breath. Romans 5.14. I could give a list of these. Paul writes, again, For whatever was written in earlier times, Old Testament, was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. I I admit, and you will soon see, uh, I love the New Testament. I love the Old. I cherish it for what it presents to you and I. Um, Well, one, we look at the first reason why we look at the Old Testament is because it's inspired hasn't become uninspired because the New Testament has arrived. Two, the second reason why we must spend time considering the Old Testament is two, the Old Testament reveals God's redemptive plan. We're going to see this really quickly in Genesis. The first three chapters, we recognize why humanity is sinful, immoral, even to this present day, you will not find anywhere else a more detailed uh, declaration or description of the means by which humanity is found outside of the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament we recognize the failure of man, and then as a result of that, we see the means by which God is initiating His redemptive plan in spite of us. It reveals our moral position before God. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, you're supposed to already be familiar with this. This is why the Gospels can start with this single phrase word, repent. It assumes that you know you're the sinner and the immoral person as defined from the Old Testament. And so it carefully and great length shows me by step by step the means by which God is initiating His redemptive uh, plan by showing us these covenants, these promises that God has made to humanity. 
Genesis alone, we see three. The Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic covenant. Later on, if you were to continue to Exodus and then the rest of the Pentateuch, the Mosaic, 2 Samuel, the Davidic, Jeremiah, the New Covenant. In fact, stressing this point a little too long, I need to get going. But Matthew 1.1, the very first verse of the New Testament assumes that you're aware of the promises made in the Old. Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Who is that? The promised one. Where do you get that? Genesis. Who is the son? The Davidic promise. A king will come. The son of Abraham. The one who will be a blessing to the world. Matthew is making some assumptions for you and I as the reader that we're familiar with the God of the Old Testament. One, we read the Old Testament, we preach from the Old Testament. One, because it's inspired. Two, we read it because it reveals to us God's redemptive plan. Three, this is unique, it reveals or discloses for us unique truths that we do not find in the New Testament. Why do human beings wear clothes? It's really helpful. In Genesis chapter 3, 4, we recognize why humanity feels shame. Why are there multiple languages and not just one? Why is the week divided into seven days and not three? Why is it that there are man and woman? Why is there this institution called marriage? The Old Testament reveals to us unique things that we could not realize or understand outside of the Old Testament. It discloses these things, and in New Testament, while it has its aim, doesn't disclose those things to us. So that's why it's helpful as a people of God to know His inspired, redemptive, entire revelation that He has given to humanity. It reveals even further unique qualifications for us as we understand even who we are as people created in the very image of God. Why is it that we give ourselves more value than a worm. The Old Testament reveals that reality and it gives us our proper understanding at the very beginning. And we recognize why it is so wrong when injustice towards humanity occurs and not to worms. Even then it's wrong. It's even more severe to human beings. I'm thinking in my mind, is, is it really wrong to do injustice to a worm? I'm sorry, that's weird. Um, one reason we study the Old Testament is because it's inspired. Two, we realize we study this in the Scriptures is because it reveals God's redemptive plan. Three, it reveals to us God, the unique things of which we couldn't know without it. Four, it's the foundation to the new. I've already said some of this already. When Paul writes, let me turn your eyes back to 2 Timothy 3.15, and from your childhood you have known the sacred writings 
which you're able to give you the wisdom that leads you to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament helps us understand terms and ideas as we prepare to read it from the Old that we can experience in the New Testament. And so it reveals to us the idea of what God is in the midst of a pagan world that would look to the sun and say, that's God, or to the moon and say, that's God. The Old Testament says, no, creation is not God. God is the creator of his creation. He's distinct. He's holy. And the Old Testament reveals this to us as the reader so that when Christ comes, not only do we realize he's the creator of all things, from the Old Testament we realize that God, as we learn and read and gain understanding of, that God is personal. He's not distant, unattached, unattached. He desires a personal relationship with humanity. You know, this we understand as the light of Christ. This is why John the Baptist can look at Jesus using Old Testament language. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That phrase alone is loaded with Old Testament truths. Behold, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb who bore the iniquity of humanity, the Passover, saved them in the day of Egypt. So will Christ for all the world who hope in Him. The very concept of atonement is defined in the Old Testament. Why am I going to great lengths to, to say these things? I think, we, I think we, it's just helpful to remember why we do this. Um, I just have the critic in my own mind that says, we just need to talk about Jesus. Well, like it's from the Old Testament that we recognize what a priest is. We recognize what a prophet is. We recognize what a, a king is. We recognize what a Messiah will be. But it leads us to our fifth. By studying the Old Testament, we recognize it as it's uniquely able to reveal Christ to us. Jesus even taught this, even after his resurrection, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning in all the scriptures. Jesus loved the Old Testament. He taught it convictingly to his disciples and encouraged them to do likewise. Romans, Romans 1, chapter 1 through 2, chapters 1, verses 1 through 2. I'm not going to read two chapters of Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, calls as an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You love Jesus? You spend time looking in the Old Testament because it teaches who he is, who God is. And as a people, we ought not be ignorant of who he is and what it testifies about him. John 5, 39, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees for the manner by which they use the Old Testament. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You want to recognize who Christ is. You learn to, to enjoy the Old Testament. 
He is the God who creates all things. He is the God who is gracious. He is the God who is just. He is the God who establishes a redemptive plan and fulfills it. So one, we, we study. One of the reasons why we look and consider the Old Testament is because it's inspired. Two, it allows us to remember that God is revealing his redemptive plan in unique ways in the Old Testament so that we might anticipate Christ. It discloses to us unique truths, the foundations by which we understand the new. It reveals Christ. And finally, good job. You've, 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 you've waited patiently through all these. Six, we're commanded to preach from it. Look what Paul writes. Let me turn back here in 2 Timothy. He writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge, this is in First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1. So I solemnly charge you, Mind you, he's talking about the Old Testament or the scriptures as a whole, but primarily in Paul's mind, I think a lot of this is the old. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. We are commanded as the people of God to preach the word. Now, let me make a clarification here. There is a difference between reading the Old Testament and preaching the Old Testament. There's a, they'll both are edifying, both are purposeful, and have their unique gifting to the church and ability to transform us as individuals and as a people of God. Paul says, Timothy, preach it. And so for these six reasons, we are going to send this, spend the next six months looking through Genesis. And I pray that as we go through it, you'll recognize how foundational Genesis is in itself for the rest of the Old and New Testament. You ignore Genesis, we're in trouble. Because it reveals so much to us. And so, one, I, I would encourage you to begin even now. Man, start reading Genesis. And if you have kids, have them start reading Genesis. And I guarantee you, it's going to start some conversations because you're going to start reading about situations in which immoral people got themselves into, without a doubt. My children, when they read parts of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Second, First, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, like, did you know like what Lot's daughters were doing? How did that get in there? And we realize, yeah, the Old Testament does not like cover up humanity's immorality. What we come to realize is how gracious and patient God is with us. Because we are immoral people. And yet God has been gracious. Richard Dawkins, you're wrong. The critic is wrong. The God of the Old Testament is nothing different than the God of the New Testament. He is exactly the same. He is exactly as gracious and caring and just. And so with that, I just want to put that critic in its proper place, and look at the God of the Old Testament by just going through one today. And I want to preach it. 
It's Jonah. The God of the Old Testament is not petty. He's not unjust. He's not unforgiving or vindictive. He's not bloodthirsty. Like, you remember when Israel, after experiencing the deliverance of God out of Egypt, 10 incredible plagues of God, to crush an empire that was the greatest in that world of that day. God brought them to the Red Sea. He split it, creating dry land in the middle, a wall of water on one side, a wall of water on the other side. And they walked through it. They came to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai into the very presence of God. And do you remember how Israel responded? Well, he thought, Moses must be dead to go talk to a God like that. Aaron gathered all the gold and earrings from the people and created a golden calf. Thinking that their leader was gone, he turned to the golden calf and he said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Richard Dawkins, what was God's response? Yeah, anger. Yeah. Because God is not a golden calf that you can make out of fire. And two, that golden calf did squat. Didn't do anything to get the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And they misrepresented who he was, and he was angry. But how did he respond? He responded graciously. He did judge, but he did not wipe them out from the face of the earth. And he had every right. And it's in that moment of crisis where God is exercising some judgment, but also some grace, that he appears before Moses and he says this, after Moses says, can I see you? God says, no, you can't see me, you'll die. I'm that wonderful. But he lets Moses see him pass by, to see the back. But as he basses in front of him, I want you to hear how God introduces himself. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by in front of him. Remember the conflict? And proclaim the Lord. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is who I am even against an Israelite nation who is so quickly to desert me after everything I have done for them. I can hear the critic. I think this is where Richard Dawkins gets hung up. Sure, you have a God of one nation who takes care of his nation, but he does not extend grace to the other nations. He's wrong. And this is why I want to spend the remainder of my time, our time, looking at Jonah. It's it's a hard book to find. So if you have your Bibles, be gracious to the other next to you as they try to find it. For it's only 48 verses. And if I were to say, well, it's right before Obadiah, that would be no help. Because it's only 16 or 21 verses. So it's before Amos and it's after, excuse me, it's after Amos and before Micah. Uh, and you have my permission to look to the front to find it. Jonah is asked to go to a people 
that were not Israelite. And I want you to ask the question, and we, we all, I think, are familiar with Jonah. But I want you to ask the question, why was this so hard for him to go to Nineveh? Look at Jonah chapter 1. Let me start at verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This would have jolted Jonah, would it, or any Israelite or Jew. Uh, it would have jolted them because of what the Assyrians or Nineveh did or were doing to Israel. They were, as, a, they were as, as, as recorded, a great city. They were a powerful city. And in their military efforts, they were an arrogant and cruel and inhumane army. We actually have some of the writings of how the kings would respond to those they crushed after they beat them in the battle. I hesitated to read it, but I think it's helpful to understand the context of what Jonah is doing. I think you can bear it. I didn't put the words up there, so you'll just have to hear me as the king describes how he would treat his victims of Israel after he conquered them. I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountains, I slaughtered them after With their blood I dyed the mountains red like wool. With the rest of them I darkened the gullies and the precipices of the mountains, carried off their spoil and their possessions. The heads of their warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. I built a pillar over against one of their city gates, and I filleted all the chief men who had revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skins. That's awful. It's one thing to conquer somebody, to humiliate them after the victory. The goal was, is if you humiliate them so badly, they'll submit. Some I walled up within the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. And others I bound to the stake around about the pillar. What a jolted any Israelite. When God comes and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh. It would have jolted like in his day, any Ukrainian who was asked to go to Russia in spite of the atrocities that they might have experienced. Which is why in verse 3, you see Jonah's response. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. 
Why is it that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh? Why would he not want to go? Jonah's good. Old Testament shows us the, the book of Jonah will give us the reason, but not till the very end. We do know this. I got a slide here for all those who do geography. Um, Nineveh is in the top right of the screen. It is a good journey. Here's your test, Reliance. Where's Tarshish? No, you're wrong, Mark. Good, good. Maybe, I don't know which way you're pointing. So, yeah, maybe it's not on the map. Uh, Tarshish is actually, you can go to the next one, is right there. He has every ambition to go in the complete opposite direction. And the reader recognizes this. He ain't going to Nineveh. And he's not going to Nineveh because, one, look at the steps that he's taking. He's running. Like verse three, this is. I think Jonah's fun. Like poor Jonah, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> Can you do that? Like our God is the God of Israel. He has no territory in Tarshish. No, we know that's silly. The God which we read in the Old Testament is the God of all creation. And Jonah, who knows this God, thinks he's going to escape this God. He won't find me there. But not only is he trying to flee from the presence of God, we, when we recognize it, we, we laugh. But we laugh because we know who God is in light of what we've come to realize from God in the Old Testament. He can't get away from it. Look what he does. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship. Man, he's purposeful. And was going to Tarshish, paid the fare. He's like invested in this. And went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Anytime it says twice in Jewish literature, like it's trying to stress the point. He thinks he can get away. Look what happens. Why is he running? The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. In the first four, chapter, four verses of Jonah, you learn that God is not just the God of Israel. He's also the God of foreign nations. And when their sins stack up so far, He has the divine right to initiate His judgment. Jonah, go. Not only that, verse 4, he's the God of the seas. Commands the winds of the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Verse 5, these poor sailors. And the sailors became afraid, of course. And every man cried to his God. Like, well, who are they praying to? And they threw the cargo with, which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah, look what Jonah's doing. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen asleep. Not only is he running from the presence of God, not only has he paid the fare, not only has he gone into the ship, he's gone into the belly of the ship. And what is he doing? Sleeping. 
He's trying to get as mentally disconnected from this mission as he possibly can. Because men who sleep do nothing. Verse 6. Well, let me, let me paraphrase this, otherwise I'm not going to have enough time. Captain, I haven't thrown all the luggage over. They still can't get past this storm. Captain finds Jonah asleep and like, what in the world are you doing? Pull him up to the top. And Jonah finally conf- confesses in verse 9. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven. Yeah, you do. Who made the sea and the dry land. Sailors are like, what? You're running from the God who created the waters and the land? Look at verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of God, or of the Lord, because he had told them. Verse 11 So they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? The sea was becoming increasingly stormy. What are we going to do? Your God is sovereign. And things are getting a little worse. What's amazing to me is their response. But first Jonas, verse 12, he said to them, some of you might think he's being noble here. I, I don't know. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea and the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Think about this. Arise, go to the city of Nineveh and declare the wickedness that they have done before me. Nope, I'm going to Tarshish. Financially infested, goes into the belly of the ship, falls asleep. Captain goes, what in the world are you doing? It's me. Throw me overboard. He wants to die. He doesn't say, Captain, turn the ship back to Joppa. He says, throw me in, it's over. Life gets better for you. Sailor's response in verse 13. Like, this guy has hurt them financially. However, the men, they're going to show him more grace than he shows them in the Assyrians. However, the men rowing desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We are earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked Jonah up, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And the men feared the Lord greatly. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Funny thing about Jonah is like everybody else is doing what they're supposed to except for the prophet. Who knows God? Look at verse 17. The God who's the God of the nations, the God of creation, the God of the waters and the seas is the God of the fish. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Poor guy can't get away. When we read the Old Testament, our image of God increases because we get to see who God is. And we need that. What you do in your house, 
what you do in your workplace when your boss isn't there, what you do with children when your parents are away, God sees it. Right? And we think for some reason sometimes, well, we're outside the presence of God. This is how Jonah acts. It's foolish. And here he is, suffering the consequences of his actions in the fish. Now, Richard Dawkins, the God that which you present is cruel, vindictive. He has every right to let the, I don't know, the chemicals within that fish's stomach consume Jonah. But he doesn't. Why? Because the God of this world is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, giving chance after chance to humanity. Verse 10, chapter 2, after three days and three nights, think long enough to get him back to Joppa. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Man, it's cool. The story about Jonah isn't a story about Jonah. It's a story about God who works with immoral people. When we read the book of Genesis, holy cow, the things that these people do. I still to this day am amazed by the grace by which God gives towards humanity. And Habakkuk, he asked, how long, O Lord, do you put up with this? He is incredibly gracious towards us, towards you. And at one point, we've got to ask the question, when are you going to stop? When are we going to get it right? right? His patience towards us, as Paul says, told us, and we learned this in Romans, is to lead us towards repentance. But if, if every gracious attempt does not lead us to repentance, Paul warns us, you are only storing yourself up more wrath. For his patience will one time end. Nineveh, your sins have gone so far, I have to divinely get involved in judgment. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Look what he says in Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You think he's going to do it? Arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Like, Jonah could have been a really short book if it started at verse three or chapter 3. Because this is how he initially was supposed to respond. So Jonah rose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Brothers and sisters, you're about to see here in a few moments the most amazing sermon ever preached. Look at verse 4. Like, I'm giving them the bare minimum. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, said, Yeah, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Altar call. 
Paul said, you know, Paul said in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. Why do we study the word of God? Why does Jonah flee with the word of God? Because he knows what the word of God can do. It's able to correct us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness. Nineveh, your sins have stacked up before me. In 40 days, it's over. Man says it, humanity laughs. But when God sends his prophet and he proclaims it, look what happens. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. What? Man, I wish my sermons were like that, right? I think every generation has preached. Crazy. The people believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Man, the word of God is powerful. I, I look sometimes, I look at my manuscript and I go, oh, I hope you can do something with that. Word of God, the church must be reminded, not, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, the God, the words which we have read and we read, they're inspired, they're holy. And they can pierce the heart of men. Wicked men. And they fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. How does... How does God change a nation? Through his word. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He's repenting. This is cool. Verse 7. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. We must repent. From that sermon, you have a nation flipping their response towards God. They recognize that their sin was egregious before God. And if, if there was no repentance, look what happens. Verse 8. But both the man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let man call on God earnestly, maybe, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Verse 9, here we go, Richard Dawkins, or the critic. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Maybe he's gracious. Maybe he's slow to anger. Maybe he's forgiving. Maybe he will relent. Verse 10. And God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way. God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. The gospel is not much different than the message which Jonah preached in Nineveh. 
Repent. Judgment is coming. And when you die in a state of unrepentance, you will bear the wrath of God forever. He is gracious. And that He loves you. He is personal and desires a relationship with you in spite of you. Repent. Look at Jonah's response. I think most people don't have a problem. I think there's a few that have a problem with the God of the Old Testament being cruel and vindictive. I don't think. I think it's an easy case to show that He's not. I think the problem that people have is God being gracious to the worst of sinners. I think that's what people mostly have a problem with, and Jonah shows us it is. You remember what they did? humiliated us and now you're going to save them look at verse four chapter four verse one this greatly displeased jonah and he became angry why did he want to go to tarshish verse two he prayed to the lord and said please lord was not this what i said while i was still in my own country Knew he would do this. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And I knew the word of God which you gave to me to go to preach to the Ninevite. If I could take it as far away from them, they would experience your justice. So I invested in it. I went into the belly of the ship and I slept. And when the great storm came, I didn't tell the captain to turn around and go back to Joppa. I told him, throw me off so that I might die. But you see the sovereignty of God and His graciousness step by step. Get His prophet to get to Nineveh to demonstrate His grace towards them. Our conviction response. We study the Old Testament. We read from it. We preach from it. Because it is the inspired word of God. We get to learn about who God is and what God has been doing in light of establishing his redemptive plan. It's not just for the nation of Israel. It has been for the nations, the world as a whole, his desire. He is a personal God who has uniquely revealed truths both in the Old and the New Testament. And it becomes the foundation for how we understand the new. For it reveals to us Christ. God is just and he is justifier. And we preach from it because we've been commanded to. And we read it with the aim that we be convicted by it. Convictional response. Jesus told the disciples to do this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go. This is a very familiar word which you will find when God establishes and sends his people out with a message. Therefore, 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's easy to read Jonah and think, that's his story, silly man. Think he can outrun the divine instructions of God. We're no different. We'll go to great lengths to never mention the gospel. How many times have we done it this last year? Spoke well of Christ to those co-workers, to those family members. You've been given, we have been given instructions to go preach the word, proclaim it. It's not just my responsibility or Adam's or the elders. It is our calling as a church, as a people of God, to proclaim his excellencies to the world. And we know that God can change the hearts of Nineveh. He could change the hearts of Tri-Cities. Why do you live here, Reliance? Is it possible you've been sent here? I think so. You know we're praying about a church plan. I enjoy you, invite you to come tonight. To pray with us about some of these things or the, how we can play a role in the city for God's glory. But some people will be like, why church planning? We love going. We know that God so loved the world that he sent his only one and begotten son. And we are now his ambassadors. And after Christ's ascension, he told us that we as well must go. And we know the value of churches in a city, the culture and the community that it provides to the city around it. Why would we not want to do so and go and go rather than filling up service after service? Which there's nothing wrong with that unless we recognize the benefits of going. This is why we send missionaries internationally and why we pray for those who have gone Parents, don't neglect the conversations with your children. Teach them the gospel. Don't assume that just by going to church that they're going to hear it. You might be the most influential voice to say such things. God loves you. He desires a personal relationship with you. But you have to repent and make Him Lord of your life. Don't wait. For if you do, For anyone who doesn't respond to his graciousness will experience his judgment. Jonah does repent, but after several generations, they go right back to it. And you know what they experienced? Judgment. You can read about it in the book of Amos. Because God is gracious, but he warned them. Stop. He's not malevolent. He's not a bully. He's slow to anger. And he's just. And he's gracious towards us. Let's pray. Lord, you are the just one and the justifier. And Lord, it is easy to look at Jonah and say, what a fool to forget our own calling. We are a diverse people. We have all sorts of backgrounds. 
Some of us come from hard backgrounds. We live a life of rebellion. We can really relate to the people of Nineveh. Maybe and think that we are unredeemable. That's not who you that's not how you think. You are gracious towards all. And if there's anyone here this morning that needs to respond and making you Lord of their life, Lord, I pray that they do it now. Some of us think we're like Jonah. And we just we just don't do it. We, we're scared. Lord, it, Jonah said very little and you used it. Lord, I pray you would convict us of that. You place people in our lives. Let us pray for them. Let's start there. And Lord, please provide opportunities to preach about the gospel, which is good news for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.